Amen. Would you like to take a seat? It's very nice to see you. For those of you who are here for the first time, my name's Ed, and I uh, lead the church along with my wife, Hannah, who you've just met. And wasn't that great worship? Paris, amazing voice, band, everything, just great. Um, that was lovely. Thank you. Uh, you guys sounded okay, too. Well done. Um, anyway, we are in the Psalms. We've been looking at um, some of the more famous Psalms over the last few weeks. Um, really uh, talking about the character of God and what it reveals to us um, about how life is supposed to be lived. And we are today looking at Psalm 146. And I want to ask two questions um, as we kind of work through this. The first question is, can God help you? Is he able to help you? And the second question is, will he help you? Is he willing to help you. So, um, just, you know, light and breezy. Uh, Psalm 146. We're going to kind of uh, work through this uh, as we go. Um, it'll be a bit um, up and down and all over the place, but hopefully we'll end in the right place. So, Psalm 146, verse 1. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Let's pause there before we carry on a little bit further on. This is a psalm of praise. Strangely, it's written in the first person, but it was um, intended for uh, everyone to sort of sing or say corporately. And it follows on from some of the themes of the earlier psalms. Particularly, it follows on uh, from the question that is raised in uh, Psalm 121. And it gives a sort of an additional answer to that psalm. And the question that's raised famously there is, where does our help come from? And here, the answer is in kind of two parts. The first um, part is where it definitely doesn't come from, and then the second part is where it does come from. So, it does not, verse 3, come from princes and human beings. Princes here is a reference to people with power, political, influential power, and human beings is actually a kind of transliteration of the Hebrew term uh, son of man, which basically is a designation of non-divinity. So, the psalmist is saying this, even the powerful, even the attractive, even the wealthy, even the influential, they are all simply human beings and in the light of the divine God, they will always be human beings, they are always going to die and when they die they will leave us. So, our help is not to be found ultimately in them, it is to be found in the contrast. The, uh, the infinite one. Because being infinite, God is not just promising help, i.e. in the future, for when we all have eternal life together in heaven. He is, by extension of his, his infinity, offering all of his attributes in their, infinity, um, in their infinite uh, nature right here, right now. So, every aspect. Infinite in his kindness, right here, right now, and forever. Infinite in his faithfulness, right here, right now, and forever. Infinite in his power, right here, right now, and forever. And as we shall see, infinite in his justice, right here, right now, and forever. 
So therefore, as the psalmist goes on, verse 5, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Is God able to help you? Starting point, yes he is, because he's God. However, does that mean that he gives us everything that we want? Is he like a little genie in a bottle that we just rub, and there we get it, what we want? Not really. Because the key word here, blessed, is not, despite what some people might think, just about having the stuff that we want. Is um, hashtag blessed still a thing? I know, I'm basically, I'm a dad, so I'm out of touch. I'm pushing 40 in the worst kind of way because I kind of think I'm still 30. In fact, someone asked me how old I was, and without trying to lie in any way, I promise you, I said I was 35 because I kind of think I am. I'm not, I'm 39. Uh, but anyway, I'm 40, I'm a dad, and of course I'm a pastor. So in some ways it's my job to be out of touch. Like that's, what, that's the kind of the job description. But at some point, I think hashtag blessed might have been a thing, probably about five years ago. And now it's probably the preserve of middle-aged Instagrammers um, who also say, what's up? I, I, have, this, <laughs> I have this friend. She, she, um, she's very down with all the stuff. <laughs> I'm so old. She's down with all the lingo. And um, I found it very funny to, whenever I see her, to say, what's up? Because she thinks I think it's cool. Uh, I don't think it's cool, I just do it to annoy her. So I say, what's up? And it makes her go, like that. Anyway, <laughs> hashtag blessed was once a thing. But of course, when anyone used hashtag blessed, they didn't mean it at all. Not in the biblical sense. Because really, when people say hashtag blessed, what they are trying to say is, I just want to just leave this here about how amazing my life is, but I don't want to come across as boasting, so I'm going to use this strange phrase, hashtag blessed, which kind of has some sort of spiritual connotations to it, and probably that will mean that you don't just realize what I'm actually doing, which is telling you that I, my life is better than yours. I've just got this new job, I've just got this more money, I've got more beautiful friends, more beautiful home, more beautiful holidays, more beautiful life, basically, than you, hashtag blessed. This has got almost nothing to do with the concept of biblical blessing. Because all these designators of success, in an earthly sense, actually have all the potential to do the opposite of what blessing means in the Bible. You see, blessed in the biblical sense has nothing to do with our accumulation of things and everything to do with our accumulation of God. If we say we are hashtag blessed when we've achieved stuff, whatever that stuff may be, perfect skin, skinny thighs, thigh-high piles of cash, and hashtag blessings in whatever any other way that we see them, what we are actually doing is saying, look at all this stuff I have achieved, isn't it great that I've achieved it? And we become self-sufficient. And the more self-sufficient we become, the more self-sufficient we become, because why would we rely on anyone else ever? We don't need a thing, hashtag blessed. Being blessed, in contrast, in the biblical sense, is a state of being that is independent of all circumstances. It is open to the rich and the poor, 
It is open to the influential and the not. It is open to the powerful and the vulnerable. It is open to everyone because blessedness is about our connection to the one thing who actually fully satisfies, i.e. God. It's why Jesus can say, blessed are the poor. He can say, blessed are those who are mourning. He can say, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsting and not yet feeling satisfied, longing for righteousness. He can say, blessed are those sorts of people, not because they are in a state that anyone would want to be in. In fact, they're in a state that most people would not want to be in. But he can say, blessed are they because I am coming. And I have come, and I have come for those people in particular, and look, I'm here. And everything is going to change for them because I'm here. The word uh, Jesus uses in the Greek is translated as this. Makariori. 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 Makariori, there we go, Makariori. And it really means to be satisfied. Now, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, called uh, the island of Cyprus Makariori because they thought it was perfect. It was perfect in topography, it was perfect in climate, it was perfect in agriculture. It gave them everything they need, needed. Now, it wasn't the most uh, rich place in the Greek Empire. It wasn't uh, the most influential. It wasn't the kind of place that the kind of movers and shakers of Greek culture would go to on their holidays and then tell everyone, oh, I went there. It was satisfying because it gave everything that people needed to live a happy life. It lacked nothing. And that is what it means to be blessed in a biblical sense. Fully satisfied, but fully satisfied in the presence of God. So, is he able to help? Yes, because he's all-powerful. Yes, because he can do anything. Yes, because he's infinite, and unlike all humans, will never, ever leave you, will never, ever die, will always last forever. Yes, he is able. But yes, he is able if we're asking the right question, which is, can you help me feel satisfied? Can you help me feel blessed? Can you help me with this itch that refuses to be scratched, no matter what I fill it with, other than you? Verse 6, pushing the point home. He's the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. Now, I'm sure if you've been around church at all, these things are familiar to you, these attributes of God. However, they are quite philosophical, aren't they? They are things that we know about God, and in fact, God has to have these attributes if he is God. If he doesn't last forever, if he isn't the creator of everything, then he isn't really God. And, as you will also know, living philosophically, just in the realm of ideas, is not what any of us ever really does. We live in the real world, and whilst these things may be true, whilst these things may be the things that we believe about God, do they really help us in the day-to-day? Well, yes and no, because they do answer the question, is he able to help? Of course he is. He is God. But the more pressing point for all of us, I think, is the second question, is he willing?
And the willingness is connected to that idea of what we're asking for. If we are asking for connection to him, then yes. If we're not, we're not. And for some of us, we really don't need God. If we're completely honest, I know I shouldn't say this, I'm a pastor, I'm going to do myself out of a job, but we don't really need God. Some of the time, most of the time. I, um, I bought a dishwasher off Craigslist yesterday. Uh, we don't need a dishwasher. It was just a brilliant bargain, and I love a bargain. Uh, I don't know why I was looking on Craigslist for a dishwasher, but I was. Anyway, this was a dishwasher that was priced at $125, but it was used once and brand new $1,700. So I thought, I'm going to get that dishwasher. That's the sort of dishwasher I would like. It was up in the hills, and I drove up to the hills, and this guy was just remodeling his house. And rather than having like Home Depot boxes that have been used about four times with all his stuff in, he had huge kind of um, uh, wooden crates, like you'd transport priceless art. And the house was very, very nice. And I thought, I'm so grateful for your dishwasher, thank you. Uh, but I was leaving, and I was sitting in this beautiful house, and I was thinking, you don't need anything. Do you need anything? And some of us don't really need God right now. However, we've probably seen enough of the stories of people who do have everything, who have nevertheless made it very clear that that wasn't enough, that we would be silly to look too much on appearances. Jack Higgins is a sort of multi-New um, York Times best-selling author, hugely successful, and he was asked at the height of his fame what he wished he'd known when he first started out. And he said, I wish I'd known that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Nevertheless, some of us don't need God. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, is not really interested in the people who don't think they need him. But he's very interested in those who know they do. So, if you know that actually you do need more satisfaction, you do need more God in your life, let's go there with the question, is he willing? And I think for a lot of people, the sticking point for the answer to that question is, does he care? Why turn to him if he's actually not going to be nice, if he's not actually going to look after me, if he's not actually going to make my life better at all? I remember speaking to a girl um, at my last church and she wasn't a Christian, but she'd come along to the church. Someone had invited her. And uh, she came every week. And um, we were just talk talking about what she did as a job and all this sort of stuff, just menial stuff. And then she was saying, I absolutely love this church. I'm not sure what I believe yet, but I love going here. I love singing the songs. I like hearing the talks. I like meeting the people. This is great. But I am very scared of God. I don't want to know God. I don't want anything to do with God, but I can't stop coming. And I said, why do you um, keep coming? Why do you keep coming? He said, well, I, I, find, I find something going on here, but God, to me, very angry. I said, do you know where that came from? 
And she said, well, when I was growing up, my parents, whenever I said that, or whenever I did anything wrong, said, that's the devil living inside of you. You are the devil. They would call me the devil. And they said, God hates the devil, and God hates you when you behave like that. You can understand why someone would find it very difficult to approach God, even if they liked everything else about it, if that was the underlying part of what they had experienced through church. And less extreme, probably, for most of us, but maybe not. Many people have, been, have grown up with the expectation that they should be somewhat fearful of God. Particularly the Old Testament God is someone to fear and to worry about because he's vengeful and angry. So you can understand then why people would worry about or find it difficult to ask him for help or wonder whether he would be willing to help them at all. As we've often said here, actually believing that God is nice and he likes you is really the whole deal. It's the simplest thing in the world, but it's the hardest for so many people. That God is actually nice and that he likes you. Of course he loves you. We all know that. God is love. He loves all of us. But that he likes you. He's interested in you. I always tell people about this um, picture I have of God entering a party. And it's a cocktail party. And everyone's drinking and chatting. And the whole thing's going on. And everyone's nice. And you're there and you're chatting to some people. And then Jesus walks in. And what Jesus does as he walks in, because he's Jesus, all the noise cuts down to nothing. Everyone turns, sees Jesus, and then Jesus walks straight through the whole crowds, past everyone, right to you, sits you down in a chair and says, let's have a chat. I've been meaning to do this for a long time. I can't wait. Tell me what you, want, what you think about life, what you're interested in. I love you. And then he just engages you in a conversation. Everyone else goes back to theirs, and no one is um, involved other than you and him. God is nice and he likes you. Most important thing in the whole world. However, I know our erroneous beliefs can run deep. And they're difficult to shift. As someone once said, and I am unapologetically appropriating it, the first cut is the deepest. And if your first experience of Christianity was one of God being vindictive, impossible to please, too busy to bother with you, that will have gone deep, deeper than anything else, and it will be ingrained in your psyche. But we've got to get rid of it. We've got to take it out. Because it's not doing you any favors. And most importantly, it doesn't respond to the truth of what God is actually like. So let's get rid of it. Let's start the process. If you've never started the process, let's do that now so that you don't have to have it with you anymore and we can actually approach God as he wants to be approached, as he should be approached, as the one who is nice and likes you. Listen to the rest of this psalm. Is God willing to help? Verse 7, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Now, many people have grown up with the idea that God is vindictive. 
But this psalm says that God is not vindictive. It says that he is just. Our problem is we have been either erroneously taught or we don't really understand what justice in the Bible really means. It is much, much bigger than most people have grown up with. The Hebrew word is mishfat. Mishfat. It's a word for justice and it's used over 200 times in the Bible. What it means is to give people their due. Now, on the one hand, this can be negative. To give someone their due when they have done something wrong is to hold them account to the thing that they have done wrong. And if we never actually call people to account, then we are never actually doing justice. This is probably the side of justice that most people are familiar with. There are countless stories I could tell to try and illustrate this, um, but let me tell you one that you may be familiar with. In 2001, General Motors was making um, a car, I don't know what it was called, I think a Saturn, and they found that there was an ignition problem. The real issue was that if your key was too heavy, like it had a keychain on it, then the ignition would fail, and the electrics would fail, and the airbags would not deploy. 2001. Very simple issue to fix. For two years, General Motors investigated that problem, but ultimately they did nothing about it. Four years later, 2005, a technician again highlighted the problem, saying we need to fix this and we need to do a recall. GM chose not to fix it or to do a recall because they said it would cost too much money and would take too much time. Later that year, Amber Mary Rose, who was 16, died in a General Motors car because her airbags had failed to deploy when her, when her car hit a tree. Two years later, 2007, six years after the first problem had been identified, GM was informed by investigators that Amber had died because of the ignition system issue. GM chose not to open an investigation. This isn't really an attack on GM. By the end of 2013, 12 people had died because of exactly the same problem. GM still didn't do anything. Public opinion and investigators got involved, and as a result, but only after this, in 2014, GM admitted that there may have been a fault in some of their cars, and they began a recall. Initially, 600,000 cars. But by the end of that year, 13 years after the fault was first identified, they had recalled 2.5 million cars. Last year, 2018, 17 years after the fault was first identified, 124 people had died and 217 people had been injured, all as a result of a tiny little issue with an ignition failure on GM cars. Last year, GM was ordered to pay $2.5 billion in fines and settlements particularly to the families of people who had been injured or who had lost their lives. This is mishfat. This is justice. And it's very good news that God is like this, that he is not indifferent to things like this. And the fact that part of us riles against all issues of injustice shows that we have been made in the image of a God who is just, who cares about things being done right and not wrong. So it is to condemn evil. 
but it also has a positive side. It means giving the oppressed and the weak and the outcasts and the victims their due. Justice means that the weak should not be harmed. Verse 8, the Lord sets prisoners free. This is not to say that the Lord sets all prisoners free. Some people need to be in prison for their own safety and the safety of other people. But he sets those free who should not be in prison, who have got in the way of powerful people and therefore have been put away into prisons because that's what the powerful people can do to people they don't like. And these are people who are too weak financially or politically or physically or emotionally or spiritually to resist this imprisonment. God's justice is to set prisoners free. To harm the weak and the vulnerable is unjust. God will not, though, ignore the needs of the widows, of the orphans, of the aliens, of the poor. Now, this is important. This is not charity. Charity is an option. We can all choose to be generous. We can all choose to do things for other people as an option. Justice, on the other hand, the justice of God is not an option. It is him. He is justice, and he will do it. I know this sounds terribly um, uh, politically liberal, God is not, we just need to shed all politics when it comes to reading the Bible because God is God. He's neither blue nor red, left nor right. He's just God. And our job as Christians is to become like him in all aspects of what he is like. So back to our question, is he willing to help? Is he willing to help you? Well, if he is willing to help the least and the lost, surely he is willing to help you. Surely his heart cares for you, little old you. Um, because I speak the Queen's English, and uh, you have chosen to speak a sort of strange version of it, uh, which I'm going to call American, uh, sometimes people don't understand me when I introduce myself. So sometimes I will say, and I want people to know who I am and kind of what I do, so I'll say, hello, I am Ed, and I lead the church. And they go, you're Aid? And you feed the perch? What? Are you a fisherman? What do you do? And I go, I'm Ed, and I lead a church. And went, you're Ed. And it doesn't, so I've stopped saying that. And now I say, I'm Brian, and I'm a pastor. And the pastor sometimes goes a bit wrong, but usually they get it. Because I want them to know who I am. And when you introduce yourself to people, you will say, this is what I am, this is my name, and this is what I do. Consider the way in which God introduces himself throughout the Old Testament. Over and over again, he says, I am infinitely powerful. That's what I want you to know about me. I am infinitely powerful. I am the God of the heavens. I am the God of the earth. I am the creator of the universe. I am powerful. However, what he goes on to say is, I choose to use my power for the weak, for those who have not. All the gods of the surrounding nations gave their power to the already powerful. In fact, it was a sign that they were 
powerful was God was with them. However, God of Israel says, I choose to do something else. I'm the father to the fatherless. I bind up the brokenhearted. I look after the widows. I look after the foreigners. Because it goes to the core of who he is. So does he care about you? Is he willing to help you? Let me just quickly explain the problem with the picture of the Old Testament God as somehow different to the New Testament God. They are one and the same thing. However, the problem is this. In the Old Testament, we have unmediated God. We have God in all his utter perfection, his holiness, his justice, his uh, bright, blinding bright whiteness. Nevertheless, choosing to interact with imperfect people because he loves them. The problem, therefore, is what will this perfection do when it meets something not quite perfect? As the writers say, who can stand in his presence? Aren't we all going to be consumed? So the issue for the Old Testament is not really that now and again we get confronted by God's utter um, extraordinary perfection and holiness. It's actually the question of how are we even here anyway? Shouldn't we all have been burnt up in a fiery, burny, burny thing? Because this is God we're talking about. However, none of us... Not one of us now needs to ever, ever, ever worry about that ever again. Because Jesus, the mediator between heaven and earth, he has taken all that is supposed to uh, come against us and he has destroyed it on the cross. He has eaten it up, swallowed it whole, and removed it, taken it away from us forever, so that, because of him, we can stand in the presence of God, look full into his face, have his face shine on us, and have no fear. We are told over and over again, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Do not fear God. Anyone who tells you that we really need to regain a bit of the fear of the Lord has not understood the Christian faith. We do not need to regain a fear of the Lord. We were never supposed to fear the Lord. Not in that sense. To fear the Lord in the Old Testament is to put him in his rightful place and say, you're God and I'm not. To fear as in to be scared of is a complete misunderstanding of that phrase. So we're not supposed to regain the fear of the Lord. We're never supposed to fear God. If anyone tells you to fear God, they have not understood the extravagance of the cross which has said all fear has been wiped away in the presence of infinite, ultimate, godly love for you. So vengeance, wrath, all these sorts of things, which are effectively um, aspects of God's perfection, his justice, his refusal to waver to the left or right, to bear with any imperfection at all. All of these attributes have been taken 
so that we can look into his face and come into his presence. And I want to illustrate this finally with one little bit. Jesus' first sermon. He could have chosen anything to talk about. This is what he chooses to talk about. Isaiah 61 should be up on the screen. Very famous passage. Jesus has been tempted in the desert. He comes back to uh, um, read from this scroll to the people. This is what it says in Luke. In a minute, we'll have the Luke version. So, as you can see, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What he doesn't say is what Isaiah says. And the day of the vengeance of our God, which then goes on to comfort all who mourn, etc., etc., because there is no reason for Jesus to stop there other than he's making a point. That he has come so that every single one of us can enter into the presence of God our Father with no fear, no trembling, no worry. Because ultimately, on the cross, God's mercy wins. It triumphs over all judgment. When we should have been deserted by God, we were not. He stands right next to us. Does that mean that he doesn't care any longer about injustice? Absolutely not. Every single piece of injustice that has ever happened to you, he hated, he hates, he felt with you, and will do everything to restore everything that you have lost. Any way in which you were maltreated by parents, by friends, by lovers, any way in which people bullied you, any way in which people said things to you which were not in line with what God thinks of you, he comes, the God of justice, to wipe that away, to restore to you what has taken, been robbed from you, and to allow you to live free from it because he cares for you, because what he is after for every single one of us is the blessed life the life of satisfaction with our God, the life of being with him in his presence so that we do not need anything more. Finally, last little bit. Verse 8. In the midst of talking about God's justice, how he longs uh, for those who are the weakest amongst us, there is this little verse, or part of verse. The Lord loves the righteous. It seems slightly incongruous. But what he's saying here is, here is my character. I care for the poor. I care for the widows, the orphans, those who have been wrongly imprisoned. I care for them. And I love those who are righteous, i.e. those who have the same character as me. Those are the ones I'm particularly interested in. And actually, that is all of us. 
And I need to say this because as a church, we've talked a lot, and I put myself and I put Hannah mainly at fault here. We've talked a lot about serving the poor, and we've done very little. There are lots of very good reasons for that. But ultimately, to do justice as a church is not an option. It is part of who we are because it is part of who God is. And the reason that we do it is also because to be a Christian is actually to be aware of our poverty. Not necessarily financial, but spiritual. That we actually need God. This doesn't mean that we need to beat ourselves up. It doesn't mean that we can't actually really believe in ourselves. We should believe in ourselves. And we should believe in ourselves because God, who is a very good judge of character, believes in you. But to be a Christian is to understand our poverty, to understand our need for him. And when we do that, we see that everyone really is in a very similar boat. The homeless person on Skid Row and my dishwasher friend up in the hills. Because we are all in need of God. We are in need of justice and we are in need of satisfaction. And as a church, and we're going to look at this more over the coming um, months, we want to be much more involved right here, right now. Hannah and I and the kids have just moved. We were in Culver City and we moved this week um, just over the road. Our kids are going to a local school here. Um, we feel much more like actually we can be a presence in this area of town. We want to be a church that reaches the whole of the city, but we also want to have a localized presence where people can say, I don't necessarily believe what you believe, but I'm really glad that you meet in my neighborhood because I can see that you make things better for this place. And this is what we are called to do, and this is what we will be trying um, to uh, kind of instigate over the coming months. If this is you in particular... If this is something that you are incredibly passionate about, you are driven by, you have the time to do, could you come and talk to me afterwards? Whether it is um, helping with uh, the school here, um, doing stuff for kids uh, after school, helping to resource the, the school here, whether it's working um, with the homeless in and around Barnstall Park, whether it's anything else. Hannah's speciality is to teach a parenting course, an early intervention parenting course. She's been trained in this. This is um, an incredibly powerful uh, way of helping parents of all social economic um, strata to be able to um, parent in a way that their kids really learn empathy. And empathy is key. Um, and this is something that we are very passionate about and want to be able to establish for people for free. Would you like to come and learn how to parent? Anyone can do it. It's, um, and it's a brilliant course. That's one thing that we want to do. But we want to do as much as we possibly can given our resources. Because to do justice is not an option. It is what God is like. And because we are like God, we must also do it because that's who we are. Good? Good. That'll do.